Anyway, um, just just to continue a little bit about the theory here, because uh, you know, someone might be listening to these things anyway, for the sake of completion. Um, last week I was talking about the proper audience, uh, and I was selling that as a great liberating idea, the whole point, the payoff of the whole formal analysis thing, and I think it really is a liberating idea. Um, but correlate to that whole uh, way of taking, taking views of the arts, our views of what criticism is, this actually bears on the paper. Um, it turns out, and I didn't know this until I was reading a book last night, that criticism as we know it is a very recent development. It only really develops around 1710. And there was no real criticism in literature or art prior to that. So it's a new thing, which is kind of a funny thing to discover, right? Now it's sort of everywhere and swallowed everything. But it's new. But like every other term uh, in, in uh, this these lectures, the meaning varies as you go from one view of the arts to another view of the arts. One thing that criticism always has is a standard. But what the standard is, varies as you go from one thing to another, right? Um, so if we start at the top again and we say we have the, the artist who is presenting with truth is beauty, and by truth we mean something super sensible something beyond sense experience as opposed to appearances that appear to sense. Um, the function of the artist is to raise the viewer from the level of appearances to the level of truth. Right? It takes you from appearance to truth. Uh, when you look at an icon or you go into a church, you are supposed to be elevated from your appearances into a reality beyond appearances. And truth doesn't have to be a religious truth, it could just be any truth, anything that the critic happens to hold as true. Um, and that, would be, that truth would be the standard of criticism. And the question for the critic would be, does this work teach the truth? Or does it delude us by giving us only appearances and sensory experiences, right? So if the question is, does the work teach the truth, right? Another way of saying that, it depends what the truth is. People in America, anyway, sometimes say things like, art affirms life. Is it life-affirming? Right? Which is extremely American and naive, because no, no other culture holds that art should be doing that. Um, but that's a, that's a version of the same idea, that art should somehow educate you morally and make you better by telling you what the truth is. Uh, does it teach the truth, or does it uh, mire us in, a, in, a, in illusion, in sense, right? If it teaches the truth, then the work is lovely, as Ruskin would say. If it mires us in sense, then the work is hateful, as he also says. Um, this is the taste of the angels, this is the taste of the devil. What I'm indicating is that the kind of criticism that comes out of this is moral criticism, uh, where the work is evaluated as a moral act and judged according to its moral, uh, moral effects. When we have art as a cause of effects, usually pleasurable effects, right? The artist who wants to cause pain is, is, a, is a recent discovery. Uh, the artist who boldly says, I want to make ugly things, is, a, is an art school creation, I think. Um, what, what happened, this sort of criticism takes the form of an analysis which goes from effect back to cause. Um, in other words, it's technical criticism. 
in my class last night, we, uh, two weeks ago, we had an example of it. Uh, Longinus, uh, an ancient critic, is talking, the effect he's talking about is sublimity, right? He's the guy from whom we get the idea that art should be sublime. And his question is, how do you do it, right? And there's all sorts of examples, and he analyzes the examples, and he comes up with five main ways to get sublime. Have great thoughts, <laughs> which, which you can have. He tells you how to have them. Feel great emotions, which he can also tell you how to have. Employ elevated diction, which means word choice that is elevated. So, you know, don't say mommy, say progenitrix, progenitrix, something like that. Use figures of thought and figures of speech, like anaphora. Uh, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground, where each clause begins with the same words, right? And finally, and I notice we're getting smaller and smaller. We're getting from the thought to the emotion that's part of the thought, to the figure of speech that partly expresses the thought, right? We finally get down to the very basic unit. Use that metrical pattern. Long, short, short. That's sublime. Not sublime. Not sublime. Right? That's taking it down to the least part. Right? The least cause of sublimity is it turns out to be a metrical unit. And if you don't think that's true, think of how much is lost when you simply change the metrical pattern in a speech. Um, Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty I'm free at last, is a sublime moment for anyone who heard that speech. But it wouldn't have been sublime if it said, at last free, at last free. That sounds clunky to English ears, to American ears, because the rhythm is wrong, right? So the actual sublimity can be related down to the technique. In any of the arts, it would be a technical analysis. Um, when you have subjective, artist subjective, or conventions, those things are not so different, by the way, because as soon as you internalize the conventions, they become, to you, subjective, <laughs> right? Um, I was saying last week that the conventions are quite widespread. Um, if you go to a thriller, or if you go to a, a, drama, a detective movie and expect the guy to get caught at the end, and if you've internalized that convention without you knowing it's an internalized convention, it becomes so part of it, so transparent to you, you don't know it. But when a critic internalizes the convention, he speaks for himself, and in so doing, speaks for everybody else. In other words, he's a reviewer. That's what the reviewers actually do do, right? They, they've internalized the conventions to the extent that when they say something, they speak for everybody else who's internalized the conventions. So to go back to my favorite television program, Just Seen It, uh, those 20-somethings who talk about the movies are completely <laughs> internalized the convention, they say things like, uh, I was, uh, oh, um, I expected, you know, I expected the character to undergo some kind of change. I expected the story to have an arc, and it didn't have an arc. But yeah, you expected it. <laughs> Why did you expect it? You know, act one dragged, and you know, they talk about it in terms of film school terms, basically. Uh, and they say if it's good or bad on the basis of whether it met their expectations, those expectations are entirely conventional. Food reviewers are the that characters. Um, the effect would have been beauty. Here, beauty would be conventional. In this, in this system that we're using, beauty, as I said a few weeks ago, is transcendity, which means it's the organization of the parts with each other and with the whole they make. 
Um, so, how do I, oh my God, put this exactly the way. Um, the thing is that in terms of criticism, that raises an open question. We can either, we have one of two paths we can follow with this. We can follow Aristotle, or we can follow what we might call the Hanslick Zettelmeyer school of thinking. Um, for Aristotle, things exist in species or kinds, right? So there's no such, so any given play belongs to a larger genre, let's say. So there's such a thing as tragedy. Tragedy is the species name, and tragedy, and the standard for a tragedy is does it fulfill the nature of its species, right? Put it more basically, a chair. We, we recognize such a thing as chair, chairs, right? We don't say these are all individual objects. We say they're all chairs. And what makes them chairs is they all have a common function of chairs. A chair that fulfills that function is a good chair. A chair that doesn't is a bad chair, right? So the critic's job is to compare the, the single thing that he's looking at with the species type and determine whether it's a good or bad example of that type. Right, for example, uh, could have been a uh, member of that class. Uh, so the question here is, uh, is this a good poem? Right? Poem would, would be named the class, right? There's such a thing called poems. And is this a good one? What do poems do? Does this poem do that? But if we say that there's no such thing as types, there's no such thing as classes, that each work of art exists entirely individually. Right? Each thing is a thing of beauty in this form and this form only, as Zettelmeyer puts it, and as Zettelmeyer puts it too. Uh, in that case, the question is, is this poem good? Which is a different question. How would you know a poem is good if you didn't have a standard external to compare it to? Right? The answer is, each poem contains its own standard. That's the Zettelmeyer-Hanslick idea. In other words, each poem is telling you what it wants to be, and whether it fulfills that or not is up to you to determine by making yourself familiar with the work enough to be able to determine it. Uh, it, sounds, it, sounds, it sounds almost impossible that a work would contain its own standard judgment and fall short of itself. But if you think about it, that's what you say, that's what you really are saying when you say this painting doesn't work this isn't realized. Uh, when you're making a drawing, let's say, and, you, and, you're, and you're thinking, this is not good, what are, you, what are you comparing it to? You're not comparing it to something to itself yet because it doesn't come into existence yet. What are you comparing it to? Well, you're, you're somehow looking at it and saying, whatever this is, wants to be, it isn't becoming that. Right? And that's all we're saying here. So every work actually has within it its own ideal, as Elmire would say. And then you compare it to that work, to that ideal, whether, you, whether it's a good poem or not, or if it's a good painting. Uh, so here the standard is internal, right? And every text and every painting is actually telling you what it wants to be if you have eyes to see it. Uh, and that would be criticism here. What would criticism of this kind be? Well, that's moral criticism, that's technical criticism, that's reviewing. Criticism here would be in the phrase of someone who was not my old teacher, because I just missed studying with him, the phrase of R.S. Crane, criticism is a learning. Right? What we've been doing here is criticism. We've been trying to learn about the thing. Um, it's, it's not a judgment, it's a finding out about the thing. Uh, and that's all the criticism would be here. 
that's what your papers are going to be. So when I say you're going to be on the forefront of criticism, I don't mean criticism in this sense. That's critical reading and art inquiry. I don't mean criticism in this sense because the effect that we've seen may not be knowable to the right audience. I don't mean, I certainly don't mean this. This would also be critical reading and art inquiry. I think it exploits women. That's a moral judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Right? Whenever you do that gender political stuff, you're actually doing moral criticism. Actually, doing tight ass moral criticism. Um, but here, you just what you are doing in the course of that paper is learning about the thing, right? And you're doing criticism in that sense. You're learning about something. Criticism here is learning. But in, all, in this case, I don't know what the case is over there, but in this case, please note it's possible to look at a work, understand it, see that it's perfect, and not like it. None of this is subjective. Right? None of this has anything to do with your own personal taste or your personal judgment. Ideally, and this might come as a shock, you would so conduct yourself that your taste and judgments, that ta your taste and right judgment cohere, so that your taste was trained to only like what was good and not like what was bad. Uh, it used to be thought that taste could be educated. We no longer think that or bother to be educated. Uh, but in the current state of things, you can you can judge a work perfect in every respect and not like it. I don't like that Corvette. All right, uh, may as well tell you. And I'm not a fan of Yates either, as I think I've said. But that doesn't stop me from recognizing that these things are, in their in their own by their own standard, excellent works, right, and, and terrific works. If every work has its own standard internal to it, you don't judge one work by another work. You don't say, Yeats fails to be Marvell. Why isn't this Corbet more like Roscoe? Right? That doesn't make sense to do that. There's no standard between them, right? Um, what's going on over there? Okay. At least you're charging your phone. Most of the students in my classes are discharging their phone. <laughs> improvement, anyway. Um, the standard of judgment being internal means that you just have to figure out whether the work meets its own demands, and then whether you like it or not is entirely a personal judgment. And it's a trivial judgment if you think about it. Well, I shouldn't say that. It may be an important judgment if you're an artist trying to find, trying to make your own tradition out of different artworks, impose your own tradition according to the problem that you face as an artist. And it becomes important to look at some things and ignore other things as great as you might recognize them. Um, I think, and it's not like I'm making a bold statement here, the English poet John Milton is a titanically great poet. And he means nothing to me. That's all. Whitman is a titanically great poet. And I can't stand Whitman. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean anything to me. He means the opposite of what I want. But I can do the, I can do the two things together without any problem because you know it's possible to, to hold two ideas in your mind at one time. It's possible to have a complex attitude. I see, have to remind people of that sometimes. It's possible to be nuanced. It's possible to qualify a statement. All those things are possible. Uh, and I can see any artist taking the same position as to matters from the And the judgment is not personal. Just as we were trying to make ourselves a proper audience, what did that mean? That means that we would understand what the work was and that the work had an internal to its own standard of perfection, and whether it meant that or not would be an objective determination, not a subjective one. Subjective choice of liking it or not is still up to you. 
All right. Is that all that I have to say? Any comments on that? So really, it's a criticism that really isn't involved with judgment or saying good or bad. It's a criticism of saying this is this thing that it wants to be or not, right? Uh, and learning it, and learning about it so that you can make that final determination. All right. I don't know what's my next lecture about. I think it's about. Its, oh, my next lecture. I will talk about something that you've probably all been thinking about. How do we know he intended it? I'll be talking about intention, right? Because uh, that's usually the student's question. Uh, and of course, the answer is, how would you know you knew? You know that is the answer to that? How do you know you know anybody, right, would be the next step. Right? So it becomes even harder when you're talking about dead artists, right? How do we know this ancient Greek poetess really meant this? Well, we can't ask her, but then I can't ask you whether you just meant what you said either, because you could lie to me and she could lie. It gets very complicated to actually determine what an intention is. That's next week. I will shut up. My weekend has begun. Shall we look at this painting? How do we do it? Do we